This is a Clark University podcast. A lot of podcasts and true crime and, and sort of just media content creators in general are heterosexual. And so they're often creating content that matches their own identities. They're often white, so they're kind of more interested in, in stories, I think, that match the communities that they're most familiar with. And I think along with that goes sort of internalized homophobia or at least heteronormativity. The idea that heterosexuality is normal, it's, you know, normative, which just contributes to kind of an invisibility uh, around people's lives and people's stories. Most everyone has watched a true crime documentary or listened to a true crime podcast. Sifting through these stories, Clark psychology professor Abby Goldberg and her colleagues noticed a disparity. Heteronormative folks were featured more often, and in a different manner compared to the LGBTQ community. Goldberg collaborated with Danielle Slackoff, a professor of criminal justice at California State University, and Carrie Buist, a professor of criminology, criminal justice, and legal studies at Grand Valley State University in Michigan. Together, the three edited The Misrepresentation of Queer Lives in True Crime. The volume analyzes the intersection of queer people and crime, specifically their portrayal as perpetrators and victims, the impact of the criminal legal system, and sensationalism in storytelling. Despite the fact that queer and trans people are disproportionately victimized and affected by crime, the majority of true crime podcasts, documentaries, and so on are focusing more on cisgender, heterosexual folks, often white folks, often young folks. So those tend to be kind of the primary targets for media production and and media consumption, which is unfortunate. Here's Danielle. Historically, we've seen that white women and girls have gotten a ton of attention. Race, as well as sexual orientation, gender identity are still not at the forefront. Part of it is the stories that they think are going to make the most money and get the most attention. And that sometimes it's a decision to cover cases that they think are going to get more consumers of it. And unfortunately, that does leave behind people of color, queer folks and others. It seems like the true crime that does extremely well tends to focus on one type of victim. And again, that does tend to be white, cisgender, heterosexual women and girls. I'm Melissa Hansen, a producer in Clark's communications office, and this is Challenge Change. Information impacts the number of queer stories we see in true crime. Queer people may be less likely to report crimes to authorities compared to their cisgender and heterosexual peers for a few reasons. Here's Carrie. You know, the way the police take reports or the way that policy is written or just the the fear and distrust that queer folks and other marginalized populations have of the system itself. They're not as apt to, to report. Having a lack of all of that other information really influences in some regard the lack of the media attention. But on the other side of that, what we're often seeing is when especially mainstream media takes on, let's say, LGBTQ-focused cases, it sensationalizes it, I think, even more than, than in the heterosexual world. It's very salacious. It focuses a lot on over-sexualizing the victims, certainly blaming the victims. 
is uh, oftentimes disproportionate in these particular true crime cases that focus on transgender victims. What people see are these stories of, for example, trans women who are murdered, who are portrayed in ways that emphasize you know, them as hypersexual, as risk-taking, deceptive, these kind of these narratives, these tropes around, you know, them being kind of tricksters and manipulative, then if that is what's portrayed in the media, that is what people begin to believe or they internalize those ideas. That idea of deception is really important to convey because LGBT folks are often blamed for not only their own victimization, but just for their existence. It's like, okay, why why do some people choose to quote unquote come out? Why do people choose not to? You know, kind of the narrative of, well, if you choose to stay in the closet, then you're really not being honest with your family, friends, and so on, instead of just respecting that as a someone's personal choice. There is a chapter in our book that talks specifically about Michael Peterson and the Staircase documentary and how bisexuality is a plot point, essentially, and how it can be misconstrued as connecting it to sneakiness and other things that Abby just mentioned. So I completely agree with that. There's another chapter that talks about um, what is called, and this is in quotes, the so-called lesbian wolf pack. It's a case of, I think, seven women of color who were verbally harassed by a man on the street, and then there was a physical altercation, and the women were arrested and received pretty hefty sentences, I think, as many as maybe 11 or 12 years. And again, that just really centers something that you could argue should not have been centered in that way. The depiction of these women as kind of a gang or a wolf pack and minimal attention to the provocation that led to their self-defense speaks to how these narratives unfold and how they're represented in the media. And also even broader issues such as how we define certain behavior and how policy defines it. Carrie notes that deception is common when cases involving LGBTQ folks land in the legal system dead naming, or referring to someone's biological sex rather than gender, can be a common thread in the courtroom. I personally have talked to gay male officers who said, you know, I've never come out on the job because I truly fear for my personal safety if I do. And then that speaks to the culture of every branch within the criminal legal system. This idea of deception, it really is the root of gay and trans panic defenses, which have, you know, historically seen folks who have quite clearly brutally murdered someone and end up getting, you know, five or 10 years because they use that particular defense to justify their behavior. And although we're seeing that dissipate across our country, it still can be used. And I think that that is something we should always be aware of. This is reminding me, I recently did some training of judges and attorneys and something that people reminded me right before I was organizing this workshop was that judges possess the same stereotypes and assumptions that people in the general society do. And so, you know, you're 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 almost counting on the fact that, say, an attorney could leverage certain stereotypes 
for example, don't give this child to their lesbian mother. She's kissing her partner in front of her and over-sexualizing her. An attorney might take the same behaviors that anybody might engage in. And because it's a queer or trans person, those behaviors are seen in some sort of negative or sexualized light. And so a judge might think, you know, that, that sounds terrible. You know, we need to protect these children from these sexual predators, which is how historically LGBT people have often been portrayed. You know, we need to give custody to the dad. You know, he's heterosexual and cisgender, and that's all we really need to know. Those biases are really leveraged in court with devastating consequences. You know, people's lives and families are really at play here. So how can the world of true crime and the legal system get the message right? I know that for me, the recent HBO docuseries called Last Call, it does stand out because it does center queer victims. And the series is much more focused on the victims than it is the person who caused the harm, which I think is actually really important for ethical true crime broadly. To me, and again, this is probably going to differ for anybody that you ask, like to me, getting it right constitutes respecting the victims and respecting their families if they do not want the case covered by the media. And it also means including them if they're willing to take part, which is important, and being clear about what the production's goals are. I think sometimes true crime producers in general forget that these are real victims and real families. And it's very likely that these families will see what is being posted or listen to it, or even if they aren't, you know, seeking it out, friends and family are going to send them the link saying, hey, did you see this about your brother? Did you see this about your mom? And so I think that's just something broadly with true crime that I, I think needs to get more attention. I teach a class in true crime, and we do talk a lot about, you know, our own experiences as victims. Most of us have been victimized in some way by a crime. It might be as small as somebody breaking into your car, but there's something that happens and you experience that victim role. And one thing that comes up a lot is how others might perceive and write about and interpret your experience or your reaction. And I think it really, that, that exercise of thinking helps people really to sensitize themselves with how would I want to be described as a victim of this crime? I do think that teaching about these issues at the college level is really important. So I just have to shout out that Carrie here on the call is one of the most well-known queer criminologists in terms of her work. And you know, a lot of our universities do not have queer criminal justice classes yet. I know mine does not yet. And so I do think that that can help on a more micro level of teaching students about these issues. I think we can all experience, you know, some type of isolation or or feelings of injustice. And we need to start recognizing that in in everyone, not just the quote unquote good guys or the bad guys or, you know, how folks outwardly present themselves to the world. But what's always interested, interesting to me is that police officers often feel alienated, isolated, even hated. And so do queer folks when they're dealing with the police, right? Police might feel that in the public with the public. And queer folks often feel that with within the, the criminal legal system. 
those years, decades of mistrust, we can't change them overnight. But we are starting to see some agencies trying to make some strides. To learn more about psychology at Clark, visit clarku.edu psychology. A special thanks to Danielle and Carrie for calling in from different time zones to join us for this episode. To learn more about them, check out the links in the show notes. Challenge Change is produced by Andrew Hart and Melissa Hansen for Clark University. Find other episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. One, two, three. Clark! <laughs>